The sermon this morning comes from Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. Um, Next Sunday, we're going to have a Christmas message. I know, I know, it's crazy, isn't it? We're going to have a Christmas message. Mostly, um, it's because Jake offered to preach for me. And none of us wanted to do Amos, so... We'll leave Amos till next week or next year. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up. Um, and if you, you know, if you follow these last three uh, prophets that we've looked at, the, there's a real similarity, isn't there? Um, and it, uh, for me as a preacher who kind of takes that prophetic role um, in, in, amongst the community of God's people, it's also fearful. Like you remember last week when we looked at Hosea, Right, Hosea, um, his 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 wife left him with the kids, and 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 he had to live through, in the same sense, what God was experiencing with his relationship with his people. Um, and then this week it's Joel, and Joel has to live through, as Justin was talking about. Joel had to live through a locust plague that in in the book of Joel, if you got a chance to read it. He describes, and Joel was quite the poet, he describes it as what once was the Garden of Eden is now desolation. Um, and in 1915 in Jerusalem, there was another locust plague. And uh, people write about that plague that came through that it was so horrible that it sounded exactly like what we read about in Joel. Uh, in 1915, they said that the locust came and eventually uh, any small branch on a tree was also destroyed. And so people reported that it looked like the trees, instead of branches, had candles, the white under, um, under layers showing. Uh, and so Joel had to live through that. Now, um, the book of Joel is divided really in about two different parts. Uh, it's hard to know exactly when it was written. Um, again, if you read it, you noticed he doesn't talk about the reign of certain kings. Uh, When you read it, you see that they're also doing temple sacrifices. So uh, it hadn't been destroyed. And also the priests were doing some of their duties. So it's hard to know exactly where it falls in. But it could be anywhere from 700 B.C. to 400 B.C. So regardless of whatever century that was in, um, the promises and the prophecies that he makes were still far off. And I don't know if you're like me, you think about that often. Uh, how long, O oh Lord, until you make things right? How long until you return? What does soon mean? What do the last days mean? Um, for them, we know that what he's prophesying in chapter 2, part of it anyway, doesn't take place until the day of Pentecost. Um, so the two parts of Joel, this first part, chapters one, uh, chapter 1 to uh, chapter 2, verse 27, uh, he laments. He talks about the present reality of the locust plague, uh, that it is like God's army. Um, and they devour everything in these four different stages, and that mimics the four stages of the locust's life. Um, the other thing, it's full of imperatives. So imperatives are, uh, it's a grammatical term. Imperatives are, do this, don't do that, watch out. Uh, imperatives uh, are, are, are really these calls to action. And maybe more so than any other prophet, Joel is full of imperatives. So uh, indicatives are, you are a nation of idolaters. 
Look at what's going on. Look at the, their, their indicatives are statements of truth. Look at the truth around you. Indicatives in the gospel are, here is who Jesus is. Here is what he has done. Imperatives are, in, in light of what is true, here's what you must do. And so Joel is really a call to action. Uh, and so that's why we use it in our call to worship. That's why we use it in our call to repentance. Uh, we get one, one day in the last seven years to look at this little prophet, Joel. And it's amazing that in these three chapters of Joel, he really does summarize Christian life. Uh, you look at the world around you, uh, and it seems in that first section what bothered Joel the most was that because of the plague, the sacrifices were stopped. And he talks about that. Now, if you've read it, it's almost humorous in some of that. Like, he, you can picture him making fun of the winos. Like, the only reason they're crying, the only reason they're sad about the locust plague is they can't get drunk on wine. But it's even worse, Joel says. The grain sacrifices have stopped. And it's an interesting thing for him, again, as a prophet of the Lord. That's what bothers him the most. I'm trying, I was trying to think, how would that equate in our society? What would be similar to that for us as Americans? Anybody see the very first Planet of the Apes? I mean, with Charlton Heston, you know, uh, and... and and at the end, right, at a scene at the end, I don't know if the new one has that scene at the end or not, but at the scene at the end when he gets to the beach and there's the Statue of Liberty. And he's like, oh, no. You know, maybe that would be for us. And the Statue of Liberty has fallen or, or the Olympic torch has finally gone out. Right? Uh, for, for Joel, the, the cessation of the daily grain offerings to him, it, it represented what was going on with the nation. And um, I think for some Christians, we have a feeling of, of that in, in today's society, that, that there seems to be kind of a malaise in our culture, an overall sadness and gloom in our culture. Um, and, oh, Jesus, when will you return? Oh, God, when will your spirit fill us again? Um, and so that's that first Section. Just a couple of verses I wanted to point out. Uh, verse 15, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord, it's near, and there's destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, The day of the Lord's coming, it's near. Verse 3, Fire devours them. Before them a flame burns, the lands like the Garden of Eden before them, left behind a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes. In verse 11, The Lord utters His voice before this army. His army. He calls the locusts his army. Justin, I'm glad you brought that up because he is in control of them. Make no mistake. It's not just something that happened and they're trying to figure out. He tells the prophet, it's my army. And just as an aside, Christians, we have to be careful when something bad happens of immediately saying, God did that because. It, it, it takes God revealing it to Joel. That's why it happened. And you can tell the people that's why it happened. Um, and so... Uh, the Lord utters His voice. His camp is exceedingly great. He executes His word is powerful. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And whom can and who can endure it? In our liturgy this morning, there was a call to repentance: turn back to your God. And so I would say, for me, as I read that, uh, the beginning of verse fourteen in chapter two, to me, is the hinge of it all. The beginning of chapter uh, of 14 uh, in chapter 2 
this is what it says. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. In the valley of decision, what Joel calls it, uh, where God will execute his judgment on the nations. Um, who knows? Uh, it, it's, it's him saying, perhaps, maybe, if we return, if we repent, if we turn back, he will relent. But even in the midst of that, he knows that it is good that the Lord afflicts his people that we may learn. In Psalm 119, 176 verses in Psalm 119 of talking about the wonderful beauty of God's word. In verse 71, he goes, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn. And so in verse 28 of chapter 2, it's that second stage. And it's, it's this God's response to their repentance. God's response to their lament. And it includes a short-term prophecy, prophecy and an eschatological prophecy for the, for the coming age. And that's where we pick up this morning. We'll pick up at chapter 2, verse 28 of Joel. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. I saw a church converted to a dental office. I get reports about the decrease in giving. You hear from Barna Group uh, a decline in church attendance. The sense of uh, Christianity has had its heyday in the West. Uh, depressive hard years. The 2020s haven't been that stellar, have they? Now, when I was a kid, we had movies, sci-fi movies about the future. It didn't look like this. Now, it didn't look like Mad Max either, so that's good. We're, we're happy for that, all right? But, but this idea that science and technology and all of this would, you know, medicine would... It, it, I'm just telling you, kids, it may not get better. It may get worse. What he faced was really the same thing. It was a nation in decline. It was people facing God's last warnings to them. Turn from making sacrifices to all the other gods. Turn from putting your trust in all the other nations. Don't think that if we're just like the other people around us, we're going to be okay. And in this context, 
the people of God repent. We celebrate love with this candle in Advent. And what Joel prophesies here is really God's love to his people. Peter picks up on it when he's preaching in Acts. And so in Acts chapter 2, um, just so you know, there is not an Acts 29. So when people ask you about the Acts 29, you're like, I checked my Bible. Is that the Catholic Bible? Is that the Presbyterian Bible? You know, the idea behind Acts and the book of Acts was furthering the work of Christ and the spread. It's like a book of church history from Luke to Acts. It's the church being spread. And so the Acts 29 is that we're, you know, it ain't over yet. We're still part of that mission. And so we're part of this chapter 29, as it were. Acts chapter 2 uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon a group of people from all different countries and nations and languages, and, and upon them come these flames of fire. These, they look like tongues of fire rest upon them, and people start talking in gibberish. Now, if you go on YouTube, you can see this easily. You just look up there, you look up like Pentecostal crazy stuff, right? Just put that in there, YouTube, and you'll see people shaking around, people falling, you'll see men waving their hands like this, and everybody falling down, and uh, you know what happens there in Acts 2? Happens to most people when they watch YouTube? They say, those people are drunk. (laughs) Those people are crazy. What's going on? All right, so it happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, uh, it goes, these people are drunk, and Peter responds, and it's great. He's like, it's only 10 o'clock. I know it's 5 o'clock somewhere, but it ain't 5 o'clock in Jerusalem. It's only 10 o'clock. These people aren't drunk, as you suppose. No, they're not. These people are experiencing the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. That's what's happening. And it made sense to the disciples because Jesus had said to them, wait in Jerusalem. Wait until we send the Spirit. Wait. And when you receive the Spirit, he says, then you will be my witnesses. You have another great commission. So you have one at the end of Matthew, go out into all the world, and then you have one in Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then that's exactly what happens in Acts. These tongues of fire come upon them. The Spirit is poured out, as it says, upon them, and they are different people. And the Spirit of God undoes. It's beautiful what the Spirit of God undoes. It undoes, first of all, Babel. Undoes Babel. Babel, the people saying, we we don't want God to have another flood. We can control this. We'll build a tower. It's it's, it's this never-ending story of humanity. We can brace ourselves against acts of God. We can. We can build a bigger dam. We can build a better levee. We can build a better car. We can have airbags. We can let teenagers not drive. We, <laughs> sorry. We can figure this out, right? We can do this. And then the Lord confuses their speech. And then at Pentecost, people are hearing in their own native tongue. Let me tell you, that's a little different than maybe what you'll see on YouTube. On the day of Pentecost, people could hear the gospel. They could understand the gospel. It took root in their hearts in their own language. That was the beautiful primary gift of tongues that we might understand 
Not that we would set ourselves apart from other people as being more holy and having languages that they don't understand because we're closer to God. No, it was a pouring out of His Spirit that every blockade for the gospel was removed in an instant and people would receive and hear. And so the sermon in the sentence this morning is that the outpouring of the Spirit, without the outpouring of the Spirit, the incarnation's blessings would be lost on us. God says, I will pour out my spirit. Now I want to define a couple things and then we'll kind of just work our way through it. This week was rough for me to come out with the structure, so don't worry too much about the structure in the bulletin or on the screen. Right, we're going to just work through this passage in light of what we see, which is really cool. We get to see this is what God intended. All right, The day of the Lord. All right, so if you've read your Old Testament, you hear about it all the time. The day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes. Right? It's this uh, apocalyptic, eschatological phrase. And it's important we get some grasp of what it means because it's used in many ways. First of all, just the word day is used in many ways. In those days or on that day, sometimes it does mean a specific day, 24-hour day. Other times it means a period of time. You know, in, in, in my day, right, we'd say that. In my day, we never did that. Uh, and so sometimes it's used back and forth to mean a specific day, like the day of Pentecost, and then a day is a period of time, and the day of the Lord. Um, so on that day, the day of the Lord, uh, idols will be thrown into the fire on that day. Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 24. And if you, if you read through the Gospels, you, you know the disciples are, are thinking about, is this the day of the Lord? Jesus, we're going to Jerusalem. Uh, are you going to now restore the kingdom? Is this the coming day? Is this what the prophets told? And Jesus isn't for you to know. And so Matthew 24, and we studied Matthew about five years ago. We got through Matthew 24, and Jesus says now, there is a day, and it's really similar to what he says here, isn't it? There is a day coming, and he is talking about his death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit. Graves being opened, the sky turned black, all kinds of miracles and thunders and earthquakes and all that. He's talking about, yes, that day. And then Jesus goes on to say, but about that day, which is the, the day of Christ's second coming, the day when all things are made right. He goes on to say, well, it, it, it's going to come like a thief in the night. Two men will be working and one will be taken. Um, and so Jesus himself explaining even this prophecy and, and, and all of them in the Old Testament. There's a day of my crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, it didn't happen in one day, but there is, there is that day and then there is the day when I will return. The prophets long to see it. But he will return as he left. In Malachi, the very last verses in the Old Testament. Right, so Malachi closes out the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence between Testaments. Malachi is told, Behold, I'll send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi is told there's this day coming, but before it comes, I'll send Elijah. So that's why in John chapter 1, 
John chapter 1, the Pharisees come and they say to John the Baptist, Hey, John, in verse 23, are you Elijah? If you've never read the Old Testament or understood, you're like, why would they say that? What on earth are they thinking? Well, that's what they're thinking. Are you the one? Are you, are you being sent to prepare us for the Messiah? Are you Elijah? And John goes, no, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that, I mean, that's really telling for us. John is saying, I'm not Elijah. I'm not heralding the second coming. I'm not heralding that final day. But I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way for the Savior. I'm, I, I, I am preparing us for that day. Um... In, in um, Joel, the day of the Lord for them is a day of decision. Would the faithful in Joel's time, would they avoid the wrath of God and of the nations? What we read in Joel called the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Decision, where God will judge. Will they avoid his judgment on that day? All right, so that's the day of the Lord. And so in our text... I broke it up in three ways. The before the day of the Lord, during the day of the Lord, and after the day of the Lord. Most of it is before the day of the Lord. So in verse 28, it says, It's going to come to pass afterward that I'll pour on my spirit on all flesh. Um, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. I'll show wonders in the heavens, blood and fire. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What is God going to do? He says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. Now, again, I don't want to bore you, but this idea of the spirit and its work and pouring out, it's just important. Uh, and I want to try to make this as exciting as I can. I'm a preacher. You know, you don't want people falling asleep. But, but there's, a, there's just a lot of confusion over it. So the, 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 the God, God the Holy Spirit is, is there at creation, right? When you, at creation, God the Holy Spirit said, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It's this beautiful picture that all of creation, uh, the Spirit of God is like, oh, I, I, every bit of this is mine. And, and, and I am uh, the, the work and the mind of God the Father and the Son. I, I'm making sure that all of it is, is protected and right. The Spirit of God was there. Um, so it is not a sprinkling of the Spirit, but a pouring of the Spirit. So in the Old Testament, there are various, uh, various works of the Holy Spirit, right? So Jake has been preaching through 1 Samuel. And Saul gives us a very interesting account of this, right? Do you remember when Saul is called, he starts prophesying, right? And, and there was a saying in Israel, is Saul also among the prophets? So when, when we talk about prophesying in the Old Testament, it is more along the lines of worship, Okay? It's not uh, Saul had the Spirit of God came upon him and he could tell all people in Israel what the Tao was going to be, which stocks to invest in. And are the Philistines going to beat the Israelites in, in the World Cup? No, I mean, it, it wasn't that kind of... It was, here's the truth about God. 
I am, and if you read the prophets, it's just here he is. Here, I, here's what here's what I know about God, and he would he would speak these true statements about God. And now we see it also in Numbers. So before King Saul, remember in Numbers, Moses is overwhelmed by the workload. He's overwhelmed by the workload. His father Jethro comes to visit him. He's like, you're going to get, you can't do this. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. From sunup to sundown, you're meeting with people and you're trying to help them with their issues. And God said, find 70 men and I'll place the spirit I had on Moses on them. And so you read in Numbers 11, um, Numbers 11, it was really interesting um, uh, I think it's verse 28, 29. Um, two of the men weren't there. Like they weren't physically there. So 68 of the men were there. And God says, I will take the spirit I have on you and I will place it on them. And so what we see, the spirit of God being used in the Old Testament, often for specific roles. I, I'm putting my spirit on you, Samson. For I, I am anointing you with my spirit that you might defeat the Philistines. And then we're, we're shocked when Samson just can't, can't stop, stop running after the women. Right? Like, you're an idiot, Samson. Every time you tell her what will make you weak, she does it to you. Maybe not this time. What on earth? Wait, he's filled with the spirit. He's doing, how, how does that, right, right? If you've read through those things, you've wrestled through it. I know I have. Like, man, he does these amazing things, and then he's an idiot over here. And then what about Saul? We, we didn't finish with Saul. Sorry about this, folks. We didn't finish with Saul. Like, the Spirit left him. Right? And so it seems very clear in the Old Testament that God sends his Spirit to people for specific tasks. And that's why he says, I'm going to take the Spirit I gave to Moses, the Spirit of discernment and leadership, and I'm going to place that on the other 70 elders. And then if you remember, two, the two guys that weren't there, like Eldad and Medad or something like that, they start prophesying. And people are like, hey, you want us to tell them to stop? Like, hey, they don't, he's like, no, no, no. And then Moses says this, it's interesting. Are you envious for my sake? Would that all of God's people would be prophets and that he would put his spirit upon them. Moses is saying, oh, one day... <laughs> Wouldn't it be wonderful if his spirit would come upon them? Now, that doesn't create a problem for Presbyterians or Reformed believers because we've been going through the Ordo Salutis over there. It's written in small letters. Um, when God sends his spirit, it, 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 it has to be his spirit that regenerates a heart. And so in the same manner in the Old Testament that God's Spirit would convince a hard heart of stone to repent and turn to God. The Spirit does the same work in the New Testament. He re regenerates a heart. All right? And, and so um, when Moses prays for this and, and God promises this, it's a different filling in the New Testament. And I think that's why they use the term in the prophecy and the way they use the term in Acts. It is an outpouring. It is not a sprinkling. We Presbyterians like to sprinkle. It is a drenching. You are covered with it. Um, 
And so it's interesting when Joel's time, then Moses' prayer becomes this prophecy. And then Peter in Acts chapter 2 quotes this section. And it's interesting where Peter quotes it and where he stops. He stops as he's quoting it uh, halfway through verse 32. He stops at verse 32 in Joel. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's this great preacher. And he stops his quote because he wants to leave the people there in Jerusalem with that thought. His spirit has been poured out. Call out to him. His spirit has been poured out. And just as that has happened in reality, in reality, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so in Matthew John the Baptist goes on to say, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance, but he's coming after me. He is mightier than I. I can't, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In 2 Corinthians 5, the apostle tells the Corinthian believers, therefore, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal to us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the filling in the New Testament is God now commissioning all Christians to carry forth his message. He fills you first with this, this sense of his gospel, and then he gives you the job of ambassador. You're being appointed, called, equipped as his ambassador in that same manner, in a deeper way than Moses had it. You are being called. Now, and, and, and because of that, we don't need another day of Pentecost. Right? God has sent His Spirit to His people. We don't need another outpouring of the Spirit in some way, like we don't need another crucifixion. We don't need another resurrection. He has done this. It has happened. And as in Joel, he is talking about that day, and then the rest of it, you read about it, he is talking about the day of Christ's return and the consummation of all things. Now, here's what a prophet would do again. A prophet would give a short-term prophecy. All right? Jake's talked about this in Samuel. Uh, when he says to Saul, you're going to find the sheep here, you're going to do this, you're going to find a guy carrying a jar, and he's going to ask you this question, and it seems ridiculous, but it was Samuel's way of saying, what I'm telling you is true. When this happens, you'll know that what I'm telling you is true. And then the same with Joel, and then the same for us. We stand on this side of the day of Pentecost. Anybody who follows Christ stands on this side of the outpouring of His Spirit. He has breathed life into dead souls. He has convinced us that our sins are forgiven, that we might be washed and cleansed and belong to Him. He has done that, and we long for that next day. He says you'll see signs and wonders in the heavens. Right? That absolutely happened in Peter's day. Signs and wonders in the heavens. Darkness, earthquakes. But what do we do now uh, during this day of the Lord? Uh, so, um, verse 31 uh, during the day of the Lord, the sun's turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Remember, after the crucifixion, there was darkness. After the resurrection, there were all sorts of people. The graves were open. Right? There was this humongous outpouring of the power of God for a season. On the laying hands of, on the apostles, there was this outpouring. And then it comes to verse 32, and it shall come to pass everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and that's where we are this day. 
We stand as a people between the two days. We're living in between the two days. Uh, we call it in theology already and not yet. Christ has already done everything necessary for our salvation. And so in epic times, we talk about these being the last days. It means everything has been completed by Christ. And we await in between the day of the Lord where Christ would come and die and be raised from the dead and be ascended to the Father's side and to send his Holy Spirit upon his believer and give us the job as ambassadors. And that day he returns, that's where we live. That's where you and I live. We can look back and say he was faithful up to this point. We can trust him up to this point. And you know what? 2022 may have been to you a locust plague. You know, we've had lots of loss, lots of sad things. But it doesn't mean that what happened on that day doesn't prove and promise and give us reliable, logical faith to believe in this day. And the rest of Joel is about that day. And it's pretty amazing. So if, if you're one who looks at Ukraine, if you're one who looks at the horrific horrors of human sex trafficking, read the rest of Joel. On that day, he, he takes the, uh, he takes the uh, prophecy of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, take your swords and beat them into plowshares. Right? You get the imagery there? You're no longer fighting. Now is the time for planting and growth and beauty. And Joel, he says, on that day, take your plows and beat them into a sword. For on that day, when our Lord returns on that day, he will judge the nations. On this day, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And on that day, we have verse 32, the end, Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, right? Symbolic of the, the dwelling of God. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So for us, Today is a day of being an ambassador. For us, today is a day of faithful trusting. For us, today is a day where we call upon the Lord. And our God, in his love, sent his spirit. He poured him out. He fulfilled his promise. I mean, if you look at the lives of the disciples, for me, that, sometimes that's proof enough. Right? These guys that were just afraid. Peter, who was so afraid of, of what a servant girl would say to him then becomes this rock. The Spirit's poured out upon him. He knows, he realizes it. it all makes sense. And he's able to live those days in light of the day of the second coming. I really wanted to leave you today in the same place that Joel left his hearers here, but also in the same place that Peter leaves those in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believer, this is for you. This is, is for a non-Christian. Turn back. A constant turn back. Place your faith and your trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that it can be trusted, that it should be trusted, that it stands above time 
It stands above all forms of human reason and science. It stands above it and it makes sense. It makes sense even, Father, at times where we feel like you, you might be silent. For these people, it was 400 years, maybe 700 years. And for us, Father, it may be more than our lifetime that we wait for that day. But Father, help us to live in the power of your Spirit. Holy Spirit, draw us back. Renew and open and cleanse. Convince, remind, wash, cleanse, equip. And we might be ambassadors of this good news. And Holy Spirit, as you broach the differences and the barriers of language and even on our text, fathers and slaves and the free and the men and the women and the Father, will you by the Spirit remove all the barriers that we might have of sharing your gospel? Father, we know that you are kind and you are compassionate and you are slow to anger and you withhold your judgment not because you don't care but because you long for your chosen, your called people to be gathered to your side. May we, Father, have a part in that. May we see this renewing and regenerating work of your Spirit. Father, may we be faithful. As it broke Joel's heart that the grain offerings stopped, may we be passionate about your glory. We know it's not in the numbers who attend or how much money who is given, but Father, in our own hearts and in the hearts of your people, we pray that the last thing to be cut out is not the wine or the drink, but the last thing to be cut out will be what we offer to you. May it be so because we trust you, because we are loved by you so deeply. And now, Father, as we come to this table, will you remind us of this work of Christ? Will you, Holy Spirit, pour out the reality of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ to your side, and how that benefits each one of us here right now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.